Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Lou. Hello. Hello, lovely divers. Welcome to episode 35. I know. Can you believe it? I know. It's fantastic. So we loved going freestyle last episode so much that we're doing it again this episode. And Lou and I have just read whatever jumped off the shelf and into our arms. Mm. That was fun doing that last time. So uh, this has been a great, fun little sort of diversion for us. And even though we didn't have a theme last episode, it was funny how a theme did sort of emerge of people being in a bind. Yes. All four of our books had that, which I find quite interesting. And it wasn't as if they were all new releases. No, they were completely different stories. It's not like it's a a phase or a trend in writing or... Uh, Yes, it was certainly true of all four books. So today we're back in Lou's studio. We've got a platter of gorgeous jammy biscuits and Lou is back from her trip. She didn't Mm. get stuck in quarantine anywhere. We've both had our AstraZeneca vaccines. We have. So things are starting to look up a little bit. Yes. And we've had some lovely messages since our last episode. A few more people have also said that they have started watching the Dublin Murders TV series before reading the books, which I thought was funny. And, of course, rules are made to be broken. They are. And and let's face it, we break them all the time. We break them all the time. So uh, we thought we'd just read out a couple of our favourite messages. Yes, we've got a lovely message here from Peggy Eggy 2661 and she commented, Hi, ladies. I just had to drop you a note to say thank you. I'm probably not unusual, but I listened to your podcast several times. That's lovely of her, isn't it? Yeah, that's so sweet. They are so interesting and fun. I've learned about so many books and authors that are new to me. I think I've heard of Graham Greene, but have never read anything of his, so I can't wait for that episode. I'm so looking forward to lots more of diving in. How gorgeous. I know. So there's another Graham Greene vote. Yes. We're definitely, that's, they are um, ramping up. We're definitely going to have to do yeah, one now. I think we will. And then we've got one here from a lovely lady, Fiona Lockhead, who wrote, Hi, girls. Just wanted to let you know how much I love today's episode. I've got about 10 podcasts I subscribe and listen to regularly, but my fortnightly Friday from you two is my absolute favourite. I must take a photo for you of my diving in post-it notes with all your recommendations <laughs> scribbled on it. I love a post-it. <laughs> anyway, thank you for all the time and effort you put in. It brings me and no doubt many others so much joy. Oh, that's so, so nice. That was nice. Yeah, lovely. And then we had a lovely couple of messages from a lovely lady, Sylvia Valdis, who wrote, I've only recently started listening to your podcast and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I was actually wondering if you've ever done a show on time travel. I was looking for a book for my mum recently and she loves all things time travel. And we wrote back and said, no, we haven't done a time travel one, but we definitely will. And then Sylvia wrote back 
to say she sent another lovely message. She's started watching Deadwater Fell. Oh, yes. And also the Dublin Murders without reading the books first. And she also mentioned that the Before the Coffee Gets Cold books would be perfect for yes, a time travel perfect. episode. So that was lovely to hear from her. Oh, yes, we got a, a gorgeous message. You'll love this, Virginia, from Lee Cypress. And Lee, apologise if I'm, apologies if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly, um, because obviously these are compounded Instagram yes. handles. So they're, you know, they're, they're not necessarily full names. And you had mentioned about, of course, your doctor yeah. using a fax. Yes. And, well, and your doctor. Yes. She's your yes, doctor she as well. my doctor as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she says, American doctors still do faxes too. I don't get it. So I just love that. Yeah. I just love that. That was so sweet. It's so funny, isn't yeah. it? So today, as I mentioned, we don't have a theme. It's a no-theme episode. So, Lou, did you want to tell us about the book, your yes. first book? Can I just say the two books that I read for the episode today were both really, really big stories that wiped me out, um, but for completely different reasons, oh, completely okay. different reasons. So the first one is Lionel Shriver's The Motion of the Body Through Space, which was actually published by Borough Press last year. So it's her 15th novel. Number 16 is due out in a few weeks. Gosh. I haven't decided whether I'll read it yet or not. Mm. And the publishers are already talking about number 17 coming out in 2022. So she's a prolific writer. It would also be accurate to describe her as an author whose opinions and books are sometimes very polarising. She certainly doesn't shy away from controversy. She actually delivered a speech at the Brisbane Writers' Festival a few years ago. She'd been invited there to talk about community and belonging, but instead of which, she turned up wearing a sombrero. (laughs) (laughs) You would laugh. I had forgotten about it. She turned up wearing a sombrero and she delivered a speech about fiction and cultural appropriation. And needless to say, not everyone in the room was amused. People got up and walked out. Yeah, they did. They did. And look, as is her want, in this book, she has created two very unlikable and unsympathetic characters. And she's known for those kind of characters. In this book, The Motion of the Body Through Space, she has a married couple, Remington Alabaster. Oh, I'm, my goodness. I'm sure his surname is deliberate. And Serenata Terpsichord. Her name is definitely um, ironic because Terpsichore was the Greek goddess, goddess of dancing and singing. And let me tell you, Serenata does very little dancing and singing. She's a very serious, solitary woman. Um, she's exercised all her life obsessively, running, swimming, cycling. And as her children would now tell her, she did so to the exclusion of her family. Serenata and Remington have two grown-up children. She's now age 60 and her knees have failed her. I do have some sympathy with her in that (laughs) regard. They are completely worn out by activity. And so when her husband, Remington, announces that having shown zero interest in exercise up to this point in their lives, he is going to run a marathon. She is incredulous and she's furious. What, because he's sort of stamping on her territory? So her annoyance relates not only to the timing of the announcement, just as she's being told... That she can't. She can't, you know, she's completely incapacitated. But also she's sort of got this peevish, competitive belief that exercise is her thing. Yeah. Uh, It's what she's always done, not him, and now he's making it his thing. And is he doing it to annoy her? Mm, No, he's not. At that point, very early on in the book, I did have a modicum of sympathy for her because You know, he is embracing something that she's been forced to give up, but the sympathy was extremely (laughs) short-lived, let me tell you. 
Initially, she has very little confidence that he will follow through and she's very derisive and belittling of his efforts. She's secretly obsessed with his progress, but she sort of pretends not to care. But then his commitment and his ambitions and his exercise goals grow and it puts them on this sort of collision course. It's very childish and churlish at times, but to be honest, the relationship part and their rubbing up against each other is is the best part of the book. And at times it's just laugh out loud funny. You know, it really, oh, okay. it re- I mean, it really is a f- in places a very funny book. So Remington embraces exercise in a much more sort of collegiate way to Serenata. He's a joiner, so he finds a tribe and It's the presence of this exercise-obsessed tribe in their home and that invades their domestic life that she, Serenata, really objects to. And particularly because her place as the authority on exercise is diminishing and Remington is beginning to defer to others. And they bicker incessantly. And, you know, it it did become quite wearing and draining at times, I found. And and she sort of takes him to task for his enjoyment of massive group exercise, you know, this idea of ultra marathons and triathlons. And and they may indeed be real events in America, metal men, as in testing your metal. And they're these sort of extreme sports. And she thinks that these events are sort of extreme sports for a white man's sickness. She describes it as a white man's sickness because for her, exercise was a deeply personal, insular, private, solitary activity. And so she mocks him with Mm. all these other people doing these large events. I am generalising and sort of glossing over some of their arguments here, but the reader experiences their arguments and their conflict in a very granular way. They're both fiercely intelligent people and they have a lot to say. They've got strong opinions and they unpack all the sort of intellectual and emotional issues and arguments. So it's 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 very detailed. And the book kind of drips with irony about the exercise industry. It really has a lot of scorn for the exercise industry. And I think it's exaggerated a little bit too much, but it's also very funny. And, and it, it's worth saying on the record that Shriver is herself absolutely obsessed with exercise. I mean, she's been known to fast for three weeks. She's, you know, her body is a temple. This is a really big thing for her as well. And there are some good characters in Remington's new tribe. There's some very funny characters. So the book has got much to say about, you know, a couple who've inhabited a long relationship at least at the beginning of the book it does. And, you know, Serenata reflects back on when they were younger together and in some ways I kind of wish that the book had been just a portrait of this marriage and sort of what happens when you're 60 and 70 and when you've been together for all these years, you know, the ebbing and flowing and and how you change as people and change together or not change together. And I, I think that would have... I don't know, I think that would have been a better book, personally. But I just get the feeling that when Shriver was writing this book, she was just so mad about sort of cultural and political issues that Serenata became a vehicle for Shriver's views. And we know she expresses very strong views on politics, on race, cultural appropriation. She's got very strong opinions on immigration, which she describes herself as brutal. And obviously these are opinions which she's 100% entitled to have and I defend her right to express them, although for what it's worth, there's a great many of them I don't agree with. Serenata is a voiceover artist. She reads audiobooks and she does voice 
overs for advertisements and films. And she's she's quite well known. But in recent months in the book, the tide is turning and the producers are beginning to receive criticism for her accents. So before she obviously did very good accents so, or, and, and now she's the issue of cultural appropriation is being levelled against her and so her job offers are beginning to dwindle. Oh. And then Remington, on the other hand, has been a senior public servant in the New York State Department of Transportation and he has a confrontation over a project with a new young female African-American who is his new boss. He slams a desk and he's fired. And the book has this long exchange between Remington and a sort of a diverse disciplinary tribunal who are hearing the complaint. And the complaints, of course, racism, misogyny and various other things are levelled against him. And we're only privy to it because Serenata is listening to a recording that Remington has made of the tribunal hearing. I mean, as if there wouldn't have been a transcript anyway, and she's listening to it. And Shriver paints Remington's young boss as unreasonable, incompetent, a pretender, and that her responses to Remington were disproportionate. And, you know, Serenata laments that Remington is humiliated by his retirement and he's unappreciated for his years of service. And I kept waiting for there to be sort of more irony or I kept waiting to hear in this book that Serenata and Remington's views were not the only perspective and that there might be an alternative oh. view. But, but you never get it. At no point does Serenata ever think she's wrong. As a character, there's not a lot of growth. Okay. And she's always assured that she's right. Yeah. And it just feels to me that that's vintage Shriver. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Having said that, it is very well written. It's funny. It's acerbic. It's a bit smug at times. And I was, you know, deeply irritated by these characters, the, the main two characters. But I would still read it. I'd mm. still say read it. Oh, so I don't like Lionel Shriver's books at all. No. Like the few that I've read. I certainly haven't read 15 of them or whatever. No. But... Um, you made that sound really good until you said about the non-growth and, and there's no sort of redemption or an awareness no, that maybe no. there's another view. I think Shriver's quite, and she, of course she's written, you know, other books. Um, we need to talk about Kevin and yeah. various other people, where she doesn't shy away from the fact that she can write a unpalatable character and that unpalatable mm. character, there can be no redemption, there can be no sympathy for that character. So it's interesting, it's an interesting idea but to me, she just became a vehicle for things that Shriver is annoyed about. Yeah, well, I get the impression she's angry about a lot of things and yes. I, I just don't find that an attractive no, quality. No, it's not no. someone she that I want to hang well, out though. with. She writes yeah, really well. she does. Um, but as you say, if you've only got limited books to read or limited yeah, time yeah, to read, you have yeah. to choose. Mm, I'm not sure whether I'll read that or not. Yeah. It does sound like it's got lots to commend it, though. But mm. What about you? Uh, so my first one was sent to me by Penguin Australia. It's called My Policeman by Bethan Roberts. It was one of just a stack of books that they sent me and they all look fantastic. So I'm just grabbing the next one in the pile and reading my way through all of them. This is set in 1950s Brighton in the UK. Mm. And I have to say that is probably my, I've realised after reading this that 
the 1950s is my least favourite time period yeah. in books or, or even really in TV shows and movies. It was that sort of post-war era, you know, the World War II ended in 45 was still characterised by rationing and scarcity and hardship and everything was very lean and bleak. But it was also a time of ultra-conservatism. Yes, it was. uh, Particularly in terms of the respective roles of men and women and also in terms of who you are Mm. allowed to be attracted to, let's face it. Mm. Uh, So it's actually not an era that I really want to spend any time in, to be honest, even though in some ways things were very simple, a lot Mm. simpler back then than they are now, um, I still would much prefer to live now. (laughs) It's almost as if in the 50s they reverted back. I mean, post two world wars, women had really become very independent Mm. and made huge strides in terms of working. And and then it's almost like they slipped back in. Yes, it was like we want to get back to normality. And so they sort of overreached and they wanted everybody to go back to their old roles. Yeah. It became very intolerant, mm. I think, very intolerant of other countries, yeah. you know, which is perhaps a, a somewhat understandable, but very intolerant of difference or people who yes. were different or didn't toe the line or live the way everybody was expected to live. So having said that, it did take me a chapter or two to get into this one because that era does make me feel a mm. bit depressed. But once I got into it, the characters started to really Mm. come alive in this. It's a love triangle with a mystery. And I'm going to be very careful not to reveal any spoilers, but there are are some things said on the jacket, Mm. so I think I can say a certain amount about it. It opens in 1999 with an epistolary chapter. It's all epistolary, the whole book, where a woman uh, named Marion is talking to someone we later learn she's talking to a person called Patrick in the first person, which is not my favourite type of writing either, I have to say. So it opens with her saying, I considered starting with these words, I no longer want to kill you because I really don't, but then decided you would think this far too melodramatic. You've always hated melodrama and I don't want to upset you now, not in the state you're in, not at what may be the end of your life. Oh, wow. So that's the setup of it. And then she goes on to say, this is a confession of sorts. And then she starts her confession by going back 48 years to 1951 when she first met Tom. And Tom is the man who would become her husband. And uh, Marion had been friends with Tom's younger sister at school and Tom was the older and very good-looking brother and Marion had been in awe of him. He's always seemed very glamorous and you know, more mature and a bit more sophisticated. He uh, goes off to do his national service and then he becomes a policeman. And Marion uh, finishes school and becomes a primary school teacher, which was one of the few occupations yes. acceptable for women at the time. And then Marion and Tom meet up again after he has graduated and become a junior policeman and he offers to teach her how to swim and that's how they become mm. friends and then their relationship develops. And then in part two of the book, there are journal entries written in 1957 by Patrick, 
who is the person that she's writing that confession to. So the, this is you swing over to a different perspective. And Patrick has met Tom at the Brighton Museum where he works mm-hmm. and has become besotted with him. Mm. And he is writing a journal which he is sort of fearful about keeping and putting down on paper. And his journal charts the course of his friendship with Tom. And the book then goes back and forth between Marion and Patrick with these epistolary chapters that are completely honest and bare. Um, There's no sort of um, fluffing up to make things more palatable or there's a complete honesty by each of those characters. We never hear from Tom, Mm. who's... The book is named My Policeman. And the story emerges of what happened in their lives and why it is that Marion feels the need to write a confession. And I really can't say much more than that. I really enjoyed it. While I was reading this novel, it was quite bizarre because photos kept popping up in my social media feed of the filming of this book, which is being done now. Harry Styles is going to play Tom, yeah. the policeman. So there's all sorts of shots of him in Brighton in his 1950s blue bobby policeman yeah. uniform. He looks perfect because he's very good looking. And then Emma Corrin, who oh, played yes. Princess Diana in The Crown, plays Marion. And she also looks, they both look perfect mm. for their respective and, and for, roles. And for that, for that era as well. Yeah. 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 And uh, her hair is cut. Perfectly, and the clothes are are absolutely perfect. So I I actually have a feeling this might even be better Mm. on the screen than it is in a book. And it is, it's fantastic to read something like this from the 1950s and realise we've come a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, If nothing else, it's a testament to our ability to realise that we're on a wrong course in terms of being intolerant and narrow-minded and opening up and a widening of our thinking. And uh, for that reason, I think it's really worth worth reading and I think it would I could see it making a really good film. I'm certainly going to keep an eye on it. Is it a film or a TV series? I'm not Jim. sure. Not I've sure. just seen the filming, so yes. I don't know what, what format yeah. it will come in. And Brighton physically yes. with the houses yes. and everything is going to be an amazing, yeah. you know, Brighton it's just, is the perfect yes. vehicle for it. Yeah. So that's My Policeman by Beth and Roberts. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. What was your second one, Lou? Oh, oh, this is a cracker of a book and it's a genre I normally sort of shy away from. But again, unlike the Shriver novel, which was published um, early last year, which I certainly gave a few more spoilers of, this one I'm going to have to be very careful of because it's a very recent release this year. It's heartbreaking. It's toe-curling. It is, I guess, an apocalyptic story in some ways, set in the seaside town of Margate in southeast England in Kent. So this is Dreamland by Rosa Rankin-Gee. It is set four years into the future uh, and climate change is front and centre in this book. Water levels have been rising and people have started to leave Margate and move inland. But a young girl called Chance, her older brother, JD and their mother have just relocated to Margate from London. They're on the poverty line, effectively priced and displaced out of London, and the government has essentially paid them to move to Margate. They're very excited about it because for them it's a fresh start, and they believe, naively, that it's certainly going to be a brighter future. 
So the early part of the book, the first sort of 50 pages, and I'm not going to, you know, is really what's on the back cover. So I'm not going to talk any more about that, any more other than those sort of things. It takes us fairly quickly through the family's next eight to 10 years in Margate. So it's quite futuristic. Well, it's four years in advance, but for reasons that I'll mention, it doesn't feel that far-fetched at all. Their mother has different boyfriends. They move around to different flats. Chance and JD both make new friends, some more desirable than others, but all of whom loom very large in their lives and they are a big part of the momentum of the book. By the time Chance is 11, because she's four when she moves to Margate, by the time she's 11, Margate experiences its first complete power blackout. Mm. By the time she's 14, the power and the water are sometimes on and sometimes off. The water laps around the streets and the buildings at high tide. The mother has a new thug of a boyfriend and there is a new baby, Blue, in their lives. So extreme politics comes into play, which means decisions are made in London and legislation is introduced, which means that the regions must completely fend for themselves, run and pay their own services. And obviously, without going into any detail, you can imagine the impact this has on poorer regions, on businesses, on schools. But that's quite believable. I know, I know, absolutely. When you think about what's happened in Australia with the pandemic, where we've all become very closed off. The idea of social displacement is not actually that far-fetched. You know, there's abject inequality, there's feral lawlessness, looting, violence, and just ferocious decline and all the while the heat waves continue and the tides continue to rise yeah so age 16 chance which is the meat of the book chance meets someone close to her age but from a completely different world and that changes chance's life and this book is written as chance's sort of coming of age account it's almost like a diary or letter to that person. And she's recounting her years in Margate before they met and the period when they met and those that followed. And although it's only four years in the future, as I said, with the political and social landscape we're currently inhabiting, the sort of the post-Brexit, the lurking ultra-right, climate change, (gasps) it just feels freakishly real. So Dreamland, for people that know, is the name of the amusement park that is in Margate near the beach. But in this book, it's deserted and closed down eerily, very eerie. Oh, that is eerie. As is the modern Turner Contemporary Gallery. It's just this iconic building on the beach closed down. There is a huge weight that sits on you as you read this book. There's this sort of dread lurking all the time, an apprehension of violence and hopelessness. But there's so much to love about the characters, some of the characters, not all of them actually. You know, there's a loyalty, there's a tenderness, there's leaps of faith. And so you have these little little glimpses of hope. The story is so compelling. I just cried and cried when I read oh, this book. Oh, really? It's unusual for me to read a book that's sort of described as being a bit dystopian. I don't think it is dystopian. It's certainly a little bit apocalyptic, but I just didn't want it to stop. I wanted to know what had happened, and I had every part of myself crossed as I was reading it. Oh. It has a feel of that brilliant TV series, Years and Years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got a little bit of Handmaid's Tale in it and a little bit of Graham Greene's uh, Menacing Brighton Rock. And it sounds a little bit like Leave the world behind the yes. one I did where yes. something's happened in New York and yes. they can't get any Yes, absolutely, reception. very much like that. Can I just say, 
I was reading this book before I got on the plane recently. Oh. I was about two thirds of the way through and I forgot to take it with me. Oh no. Uh, I almost uncried when I unpacked my suitcase. I just couldn't settle. I was trying to read another book for, you know, future episodes. I just so I downloaded the audio and listened to the last third of the book on, on audio, which is a bit indulgent of me, but Oh my goodness, the audio is fantastic. It is very rare that I say to people, if you don't want to read the book, listen to the oh. audio. I'm going to go right back to the beginning of the audio and listen to it. it the lady who is narrating this book is superb. Oh. It is absolutely brilliant. I mean, this book is just fabulous. I really want to read Dreamland that, by Rosa Rankin Gee, and it's published by Schreibner Books. Oh, why do you do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, my next book, I know you've read, but we haven't discussed this no, at all, so I don't even we know haven't. what you thought of it. So yeah. this is going to be interesting. I bought this after one of our listeners. Yes. Our very loyal Jane recommended it to us. Thank you, Jane. Yes. It is so fantastic. It is a little bit of a hard one to talk about because I think it is best left for the reader to unpeel all yes. of the layers. It's the sort of book that's really best to discuss with someone who's read it. Mm. But I'm going to mm. do my best. I'll charge ahead. I had not read Meg Mason before. She has written a memoir of motherhood called Say It Again in a Nice mm. Voice, which I just <laughs> love. And then her second book is a novel, You Be Mother, which I recently bought because I adored this so mm. much and I saw it in the bookshop and grabbed it. And then this one, Sorrow and Bliss, is her third book. She's a journalist and she's written for lots of great papers and magazines. This book is set in London. Uh, Meg lives in Sydney in Australia. The main character is called Martha and she comes from a very, very dysfunctional and mm. colourful family. Uh, she has the most wonderful sister called Ingrid mm. and honestly I just adored her relationship with her sister so much. The rest of the book could have been complete rubbish and I would have just continued to devour it because I loved their dynamic so much. Martha is married to Patrick and when the book opens we meet them as a couple and Patrick seems like the nicest husband ever and, and a bit of a saint. And it's clear that Martha is not the easiest person to be married to. And really, those two depictions of Patrick and Martha are absolutely the same for the entire book. Yes. What you see at the beginning is really what, what you yes. get. And she starts the book sort of near the end in the sense that it, she says, the last party that Patrick and I went to... And she talks about what happened at that party. And that was her complete disaster of a 40th birthday mm. party. So, so you sort of know things have gone off the rails in some sense very early on. That's sort of the opening of the book. And then Meg Mason goes back in a full circle and goes right back mm. to childhood and how she met Patrick. And they did, in fact, meet in childhood. Mm. And it's, you know, quite a, a touching and heartwarming and sad all at once mm. story of Patrick's life. And then she charts the arc of their entire relationship. And it becomes apparent that Martha has some problems with her mental health, to put mm. it mildly. And 
these problems do impact very significantly on all of her relationships. And that may be a content warning for some people. So yes. maybe look yep. into that if you think that that might upset you. The nature of her mental health issues is deliberately kept quite vague. Mm. There's a note at the back of the book to say that she has deliberately kept them quite vague. Then it's that they don't represent a particular diagnosis. Uh, she says the medical symptoms described in the novel are not consistent with a genuine mental illness. No. And I think that was quite mm. a clever thing to do. Although I did try and sort of work out what <laughs> the issue was. That's so you, Virginia. <laughs> I had all sorts of ideas. <laughs> Did you get your books up? <laughs> so funny. But I, but it was funny because I didn't sort of come up with anything. No, and then no. when I read that note, that sort of made yeah, it all. She wanted good. it to be symbolic. Yes, didn't she really? yes, it was exactly. Yeah. It was just enough that there were yes. significant problems. Yes. And that, that was what the story was writing on. Quite clever, really, the balance that you felt yes. towards sympathy for her and irritation for her. Do you yes, know what I mean? That that absolutely. Kind of, it was knife edge at times for knife me. For edge. me, anyway. She was yeah. extremely unlikable. Yes. For most of the time. Yeah. In yeah. fact, really, the only time she's likable is yes. with her sister. Yeah. The humanity of that relationship. Yeah. yeah. She sort of manages to always be there for her yes. sister. I really don't want to say too much no. more about the plot, but I just do want to say that to me the writing is sparkly, mm. it's very arch, mm. it's funny and it's very, very clever. Mm. I loved the pacing of mm. the novel. It's quite dramatic. It's I thought it was very perfectly structured. Mm. It's completely propulsive. It has a very dramatic apex connected with her mental health issues mm. and maybe some misunderstandings or misapprehensions by some of the characters in the book. There are a few things in there that I thought stretched credulity a little mm. bit. Perhaps Patrick was a little bit too perfect and too tolerant at times. A bit wet. Yeah, he, yes, and... I still thought he was gorgeous, mm, though, mm. even though he probably did seem a bit wet. Mm. And some of the issues around or the tolerance for her, for someone who really did have quite significant issues, she seemed to be functioning perhaps better mm. or continuing to function better than perhaps someone would in real life. Mm. But because it was so beautifully written mm. and even though she is immensely unlikable at times... You do have sympathy for her. You're in mm. her head. Yeah, absolutely. And you are sort of rooting for her mm. and rooting for them, I guess. Mm. And then there's, you know, some delightful outer characters. There's an, a fabulous auntie mm. called Winsome. Yeah, she's got uh, Who lives in Belgravia. Yeah. And I, you could just picture yes. Winsome yes. to a T. But, you know, the uncles and the cousins are all... So easy to imagine. Yes. They're so beautifully drawn. Yes. The dialogue Even is Even Peregrine, sharp. The, the colleague, the work colleague. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, Peregrine was a great character. Mm. I thought it was wonderful and, uh, and it's got a very good ending. Mm. I thought the ending was very Ooh, well done. I'm looking forward. I, I agree with you. I'm so glad you mentioned the relationship with the sister because to have that one person in your life that you can be completely honest with and the humour between them, I just thought it was uh, that sort of truth-telling relationship yeah. that they have. I just thought it was fabulous. So they had a lot of humour yeah. but bare honesty. Yeah. And at one point even the sister has to say, 
pull yourself together. Yes, yes, enough. <laughs> and enough. that was very real to me. Yeah. Like she was pushed and pushed and pushed, but even she, yes. you know, had her limits. Yes. So that really did ring true for me. I just loved it. I uh, uh, can't uh, wait to read her next, the next yeah, one that I've got Yeah, and I do there. wonder sometimes, you know, as a journalist, it was very well edited because it was so crisp and sharp, the writing, wasn't it? So and, and beautifully just, done. Just, you know, simple sentences yep. but beautifully yep. written. Yep. Yeah, Crisp I, is a good word, actually. Yeah. And the type of humour I love, that yeah. sort of very arch, yes. a slightly dark, a bit self-deprecating yeah. and lots of elements of surprise, yes. you know, little yes. surprise twists. You know, it's great. Absolutely really enjoying it. it. She's, she's quite a find. I don't know much about her at all. Yeah, yeah. So, Lou, one of our listeners, Karen uh, suggested that it might be good if we choose our favourite book each yes. week, which I think is actually a really good idea. It's a great idea. So I'm going to ask you this week, Lou, what's your favourite book? Hands Down Dreamland. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, a fabulous book. That sounds yeah. And fabulous. you? Uh, Sorrow and Bliss, definitely. When I go out and buy another book by an author like that, that's a sign yes. that I'm just loving everything that they do. So Yes. Yeah. So they're, my, they're our favourites. So now we have some book news. Oh, yes, I do have some so book I, news. So I've got one yeah, little go. tiny piece of book news, which is just that book that I uh, reviewed recently, Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam, the one we just mentioned, mm-hmm. which is very apocalyptic, set in uh, Long New, Island. Oh, New, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, it is. No, it's, it is Long Island. And something's happened in New York yeah. and they, they don't really know what. I just noticed that that's, being made into a Netflix TV series oh. with Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think they would both be really good. Yes. So that's when the family arrives and there's already yes. a family. Yeah. So oh, Julia Roberts wait. is in the white couple, I'm yes. presuming, who are already at the house. Yes. Unless they change it all, which they may do for the book. Yes. But the way the book is structured, it would be Denzel as part of the black couple who knock on the door and say, we're the owners, Yes, something terrible's happened and we need to come in, this is our house. Yes. <laughs> uh, so really good. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. And quite big stars. So that's, yeah, really that's obviously a big contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just had a little bit of book news. The Australian Financial Review newspaper this week uh, has done a short article on the books that were read or most borrowed from Australian libraries during the initial pandemic 12 months. So we're talking about March March last year. Yeah. And basically, escapist thrillers and works by local authors uh, sustained Australian readers through the 2020 coronavirus lockdowns with a rise in e-books keeping the nation's libraries busy. So the Apparently there's a, a library's index which assesses borrowing data from 34 million loans across 100 regions and, and libraries across Australia and New Zealand. Wow. And so they do it sort of march to march. And basically the index allows librarians to identify what they're going to order for the next six years. Um, And basically the conclusion is escapist literature, mystery thrillers, but also Australian authors, and that accounts for 65% of the books borrowed, which is a huge percentage. So the most borrowed books, the first in fiction, were all crime. And it was um, Survivors by Jane Harper, Lee Child, Blue Moon, Dervla McTiernan, The Good Turn, the Lost Man by Jane Harper, and then Michael Connolly, Fair Warning. Wow. So it's extraordinary. Yeah. And nonfiction, it was Michelle Obama's Becoming, yep. Phosphorescence by Julia Baird, oh. Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, The Barefoot Investor by Scott Pape, and then Mary Trump's book on Trump. 
So I was actually quite disappointed. Wow, what a funny mix. Yeah, I think it's a bizarre mix, but it does show the appetite yes. for crime yeah, mocks. Yeah, we yeah. need another crime episode. We do. Yeah, well, we can easily rustle up another crime episode. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> can. We won't have any yeah, trouble I was, there. I, I think I'm a bit disappointed, actually, oh. that there's not a wider... Yeah. Well, 65%. I think people wanted to be taken away, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, you're Just right. Something you're right. That's completely it, I guess. gripping. And I, I think that's it. That's It's the escape factor, yep. isn't it? You don't it's want to the, think about life. And yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And so, a crime novel definitely does that. You just get completely transported into yes. it. Yes, although or a as, thriller. as we've shown recently, it's becoming closer and closer to real life. That's, that's right. So that's the problem. <laughs> Now, we need to just remind everyone about Book Club. We have chosen yes. our book. We're going to be doing Wuthering Heights mm-hmm. by Emily Bronte. Really looking forward to this. It's a wonderfully gothic book. I can't wait. We're going to be discussing it on an episode which should go to air about the 25th of June. Yes. So there's plenty of time yep. to get your hands You've on got a, a month. copy. And read it. Louise and I are also going to each read an- another book that's a bit gothic. A bit gothic, just to keep the whole, we'll try and ratchet the whole gothic yes. thing right up to maximum level. So actually, I think I know what I'm reading. I'm pretty sure I know what I'm reading. But send us some gothic recommendations yes. too. That would be really good. Yes. In, in advance of idea. the 25th of June. Yes. We, can, we might read a few out. Good idea. And then I was just going to mention a writing tip my writing tip is a podcast that I've found, but I've only listened to one episode so far and it was just so good. The podcast is called In Writing with Hattie Cressel. Mm. And I scrolled down and looked at all the various authors who she has interviewed about the writing process and I landed on episode 26, which is an interview that she did with George Saunders. Ah, yes, yeah. And I have the book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, and I find him quite fascinating. So I listened to that one at oh, my goodness, it was good. So that's, that's really my tip. I really just recommend that if you're interested in writing, that whole podcast is probably fantastic. But certainly that episode with George Saunders is excellent. It opens with her interviewing him. It's during the pandemic, so they're in different locations. And he is at their cabin or their retreat in upstate New York. And he looks out onto woods oh, and greenery beautiful. and he's, he says he's near the kitchen so he can sneak out and get treats and food when he needs to. He likes to be near the family. He likes to have the background of family life buzzing around behind him. His children are older now, yes. but he's always liked that. And he's just very generous about the writing process. He lectures in writing, has a really interesting program that's quite exclusive and you have to be unbelievably good to Syracuse, get it to Syracuse, Syracuse University. Yeah. They only take a tiny number mm. of students and they're already mm. amazingly good writers and then they try and really mm. turn them into even more fabulous ones. And I thought it was wonderful. So I'm not going to say any more about the content of it because it's no. just so good and As you know, I did really start compelling. reading the book, but I... I'd almost rather be doing the course. Yes, Do you know the what course mean? would be you know, wonderful. The, the book's fabulous, but it, it just, it's very 
it's very dense. Yes. And and I feel I'd much rather be sitting in a classroom yeah, with him. Yeah, you know. He would be just so fantastic. Yeah, incredible. There might be some sort of online opportunity, mm. I'm not mm. sure. Now, did you have a life hack clue? I did. It's very lame, but I'm going to share it anyway. I'm sure it's not. <laughs> you can see I obviously drink more bottles of wine during the winter months. If you have a bottle of wine that you need to chill quickly, right. get a piece of kitchen paper, wet it, wrap it around the bottle and put it in the freezer. And I guarantee you, your bottle of wine will be cold that is so very good. quickly. And why does that work? Okay, so if I had my eldest son here, <laughs> exactly. he would explain the science far better than me. It's something to do with, well, your freezer is dry for a start, and I think it's about drawing the energy, so the warmth, out of the bottle okay. onto the surface of that paper. Oh, that's so clever. Something uh, that I'm sure there's that's a, a, handy a much point. more technical... <laughs> explanation but that's how that's how it's working because it's taking the heat out of the bottle but it's a constant problem because you go to the bottle shop and you've got yeah or you go down to your cupboard or whatever yeah, it is yeah, and, you, yeah. and you which is what we do yeah yeah and then you think how am I going to chill this yes, yes. you don't want to put ice in it or something no. <laughs> the well, like, well, of course, <laughs> there's also salt in the ice is something you can do as well but who's going to be doing that no, no. yeah no, that sounds really good. So there you go. So what else have you been diving into lately? Very Maybe? little. I've been very busy at work, so I've not been diving into terribly much. I, I have to admit a guilty secret that I come home <laughs> and I sit on the couch and I watch MasterChef. That's not a guilty secret, Lou. <laughs> well, I, I gave up on MasterChef for years. Couldn't stand it. Irritated me so much. And, of course, the Australian MasterChef is quite well known. It's big in the UK. and yeah. it's, and I'm really enjoying it. Oh, I'm really enjoying it. So I've been opening my cookbooks again. I've been oh, cooking more. Well, I think that's... it's winter. Yeah, yeah. And not that we can call this weather particularly no, no, wintry, no. but it is cold. <laughs> yeah. And I've been doing lots more cooking and I've been watching MasterChef. Gorgeous. So that's all I've been doing, yeah. Virginia. That's, that's How about good. you? Well, I'm a bit like you. I've been going back and doing all of the Shits Creek episodes all oh, over again, which I just adore. It. So I haven't got a lot. But I do have two podcast episodes that I loved so I thought I would mention those. Great. The first one is um, an ABC radio podcast. It's called All in the Mind. Yes. And the episode is called Super Voice Recognisers. It was so interesting. So it goes back and talks about super face recognition as well. And then the, so there was an episode that they did about that in 2018, which is no longer available mm. on the podcast scrolly thing. So I haven't heard that, but they... the podcast <laughs> scrolly thing. We're really technical here, folks. <laughs> this is the cutting edge. <laughs> you cannot get it, but they do mention the 2018 episode, and so the, and then they cut in bits of it. And I have heard of people who cannot recognise faces. I know the Crown Princess Victoria of Sweden has it, where there are lots of people who literally do not recognise faces, even their own family members. Is that just an excuse to be able to ignore people? Could I have that syndrome? <laughs> quite nice It's got a long while. name. Yes, so Victoria, the Crown Princess of Sweden, suffers from prosopagnosia, mm. which makes it difficult to recognise familiar faces, wow. which is a huge drawback so if you're neurological? a member of the royal family. Is it neurological? Yes, it's it's yeah. part of your brain. Yeah. But this episode about super voice recognition and super face recognition is the other end of the spectrum where there are people who are incredibly good at it, mm. at 
both of them. And they do seem to go together, interestingly, even though different parts of the brain light up Mm. when you are doing each thing. So Mm. they're different parts of the brain. But because we often link them in our mind, I think people think that that maybe they're connected in that way. One of the guys that's speaking on the podcast says, I've actually got a confession. I think I might be a super face recogniser. Wow. He says, I did a test years ago and I got quite a high score. I can't quite remember it, blah, blah, blah. So he does it again. Yeah. And they've created this test that's incredibly difficult because the first lot of tests that they created, the very good facial recogniser people all got 100%. And so they needed to make it really difficult to weed out those people. It's really, really hard. And he got in the 80 percents somewhere in the eight and the really really good people are in the 90 percent and then there's one lady in melbourne who got 98 percent or something like that and she's one in millions wow super super good at recognizing faces and they made it difficult because they changed the environment so it wasn't just like comparing mugshot with mugshot it was sort of people walking in the street different but they don't distort the face at all They don't do something to the face. No. Wow. Uh, So there's different types of tests. One is where you put two together and say, are they the same? Or two voices, are they the same? Oh, okay. Um, And then there's other ones where you're shown, say, 20 faces and then you're shown another batch and you have to say whether any of them are the same as your previous batch. It's like a hypersensitivity thing, isn't it? It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I was thinking about the issue of super face recognition in particular in terms of the potential with going to court and Mm. giving eyewitness evidence. Because you can imagine if the science develops, which it seems like it is doing, where scientists can say this person sits on this part of the spectrum of good or very good or very, very bad... You can imagine that if Attacking their veracity of their identification. If someone was being called as a witness or to give identification evidence, you can imagine the other side saying you also need to tender evidence of where they sit on the spectrum. I don't know if that is genius or deeply cynical. I just can't, you know, the idea that that you would have, that would be another tool in your trade well, as a defence lawyer. I am genius, thank yeah. you, and <laughs> probably a bit cynical. You can yeah. see that it's got to become relevant yeah. no, no, in absolutely. court, hasn't it? Absolutely. Because we do know that facial recognition is or, or eyewitness testimony is fallible. Yes. And it, it, to be honest, it's diminished a little bit with DNA and True. various other it's things. It's not used been other as tools much. that have been used yeah. because we don't think humans are particularly reliable yeah. or, yeah. We, we, you know, where they're attacked as being unreliable. And we now know why. Yeah. Because yeah. How fascinating. So interesting. Mm. And then the other podcast episode that I just loved is called Absolutely Mental. Yes. And it's Ricky Gervais and... His American scientist friend, Sam Harris. Oh, because he loves science, He loves he? science. And it's fantastic. There's only one episode so far. Oh, I'm going to have to listen to this. I hope they, I hope they do more. And he, Ricky rings up Sam and they've obviously decided this in advance and they know it's being recorded, but it's quite sort of perfunctory. He says, 
why do we dream? <laughs> he starts off with his funny accent and he launches off into a tangent asking, what is the evolutionary reason for yes. us dreaming? What purpose does it serve? He says, I, don't, I know what fingers are for, but you know, what are dreams for? And he, he does ask really good questions. And so they delve into that for a little while. But for me, the best part of this was that they go off into all sorts of tangents, which is what a conversation yes. does if, yes. if you don't monitor yes. it. Yes. And they go off and they start talking about Salvador Dali and museums and then they get into comedy and what makes comedy work and Fantastic. why puns aren't funny and physical comedy and it's Fantastic. I'm going to put that on today, Ginny. I love everything Gervais it does. I think delightful. that's just fantastic. I've listened to it twice and yes. I absolutely love it. Well, I hope it. he makes more. Yes, so <laughs> do I. He's the kind of guy that would would get sick of it. He wouldn't get sick of it and he just wouldn't do it anymore. And, and the conversation, he, he says, oh, so coming back to dreams, so basically you don't know the answer. Okay, bye. <laughs> and he just hangs up on him. <laughs> He's so smart. He's so smart. Yeah, and loves science. So yeah. I'm, lo oh, I'm definitely yeah. going to listen it's, to that. Well, did I, you say absolutely mental? Absolutely mental. Excellent. Why do we dream? Yeah. yeah, so that was a fun way to conclude our going themeless mm -hmm. for two episodes. We'd love to hear if you've read any of today's books and what you thought of them. We're really looking forward to our next episode. We're going to be discussing Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. I'm really looking forward to all that gothic, yes, misty. We, we might need to have a bit of a sort of a different theme tune. We might have to have a bit of, what's her name? Kate Bush. Kate Bush in the background. <laughs> So do get reading if you want to join us because I think if you have read Wuthering Heights and particularly if you've read it recently, I think that might make the conversation mm. just that bit more mm. enjoyable. I've actually posted to our Instagram account a couple of screenshots of the family tree, mm -hmm. which if you haven't read Wuthering Heights or it's been a long time, it is a bit confusing mm. <laughs> between yes. the Earnshaws and the Lintons because they're incredibly incestuous yes. and it does help to actually look at a um, That's family very good. tree. That's excellent. So I, um, mm. I've posted a couple of mm. those on our highlight for our book club. We'd absolutely love it if you would come and follow us on Instagram because we post photos of all the books that we discuss and we'd also love you to include us in your social media feeds and tell a friend or two about our podcast because that would really mean a lot to both of us. So we'll see you next time on the Wild and Windy Moors. Yes. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working it, diving in. We're really looking forward to our next episode. We're going to be discussing... Our swaps? No. No, we're doing Wuthering Heights. You're going to sneeze. No, I'm going to laugh. Well, I can't laugh because it's so inappropriate. <laughs>